Uh, let's begin with epistemology and causation and start with the Hume position. Since Hume preceded Kant by about a decade or so, uh, Rob, if you can start by giving a thumbnail definition of epistemology and then jump into the Hume's position. Before you start, I just want to welcome you both. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm excited about this, and I know our listeners are going to learn a lot. So thank you for being here, and uh, with no further ado, uh, with uh, we're going to take about five minutes uh, for Rob Olson to kind of give the Humean position on epistemology and causation. So, all right, the clock is running. Rob okay. Olson. Thanks. Thank, Dave so, thank you, Dave, so much for having us uh, here on, at your station. So epistemology is the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods, its validity, its scope. What is the mind's relationship to reality? That's always been a very intriguing concept. Is there an absolute reality? We debate that at the Dallas Philosophers Forum all the time. Two common positions are rationalism and empiricism. So rationalism is a belief in innate ideas, reason, deduction. It sees human beings as ones that are capable of great thoughts and be able to reason things out in a rational way. So, for example, um, uh, Descartes uh, was a rationalist. He invoked the error of the, the senses, the weaknesses of the senses to generate doubt. Um, Plato was also a rationalist. When you think about his, his, his forms and those ideas, uh, both philosophers talk somewhat about the senses can sometimes deceive us. Uh, we have reason not to trust them. Uh, dreams, fits of passion, psychiatric disorders, whatever it might be. So they both believe that rationality is, is vital. Uh, whereas uh, David Hume was an empiricist. Uh, Newton's scientific method provided him with a template for introducing the experimental method into his investigation of the mind. And so he really... He really saw, Dave, that what Newton had done for science, it was called natural philosophy back in his era. What Newton has done for science, why can't I, David Hume, do for human nature, do for epistemology, and to figure out how, how we work? So he, he argued that everything we believe is ultimately traceable to experience. So that's, that's empiricism. It's experience and observation. Uh, and so we, he says he believes that we gain a great deal of information by experience, by, by the scientific method. Uh, and so anyway, but he says that it's probable. There's always the skeptic. He's always referred to as the Scottish skeptic. He says prob probable because the only things that we can know for certain are analytical statements such as all men, all unmarried men are bachelors. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's an analytical statement, and, and, and Kant talks about that as well, where, where the predicate is included in the subject. Uh, but Hume saw that ideas were really impressions, impressions like right here, we're at the radio station right now. This, these are impressions are very, very strong. But in a few weeks' time, when we'll look back at this, at this, at this moment, um, they'll seem more like ideas and they'll become weaker. But, the, but right now, this impression is very, very strong. Now, would he, he would have to acknowledge that the mind, the reason, is cooperating with the senses and the experiences. He's not discounting the reason, right? He's not discounting it, but he puts a lot more emphasis on the uh, experience, you know, the, the, all the different sources. And we, he turns, he, he would say that we, we have these perceptions, 
and we turn them into simple ideas, and then we turn these simple ideas into more complex ideas. Yeah, you you mentioned some of the other rationalists like Plato and De, and Descartes. Descartes. Uh, my understanding is that Hume comes from a line of uh, former empiricists, people like uh, Locke and yes. Berkeley. Right. Can you? I uh, got about a minute and twenty seconds, so okay. uh, no no rush. But can you kind of tell maybe the progression of the empiricist thought and how it kind of culminated with uh, David Hume? Well, it's interesting because. Because Locke, John Locke, really saw the the mind as a blank tablet. We've heard that before, tabula rasa. Uh-huh. Uh, that we see the mind as a as a he sees it as a blank slate. Uh, and yet, I think David Hume, and even in his later writings, would acknowledge that we have some predispositions. We have predispositions for being an, a good artist, or or maybe a, a good athlete, or we have these tendencies. Uh, to have certain and 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 Immanuel Kant felt that that way even more strongly, uh, but I but I think that that David Hume would challenge John Locke as far as there are other factors involved and that we might have some innate predispositions mm-hmm. to uh, so it's sort of a combination of of the two in a way. But really, uh, Immanuel Kant, Dave can talk more about that. Immanuel Kant really pursued that. that but angle. we're right on time to move over to okay. David Drum. Thank, thank you very much, Rob Olson, giving the Humean uh, position on epistemology and causation. David Drum, Immanuel Kant, uh, what would he say about epistemology and causation? Well, I think the first thing to point out is that uh, Immanuel Kant, by his own admission, was strongly influenced um, by Hume uh, in his epistemology. In fact, uh, the quote is, uh, Kant credits with Hume, Hume with awakening him from his dogmatic slumber. Mm-hmm. And what, what he means by that is that prior to encountering Hume's thought, Kant had been a follower uh, of a rather obscure rationalist thinker named Christian Wolff, who was in turn a follower of Leibniz, uh, one of the main rationalists. Uh, but after reading Hume, uh, Kant came to share Hume's conviction that our only source of knowledge uh, is what is derived from our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he denied uh, the platonic notion that we can have an intuitive knowledge of intellectual ideas except as an abstraction from our, from our sense experience. However, he conceived of the uh, experience um, as in a different way than Hume did because... He divided it into two different categories. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there was what he called uh, sensation, which is uh, the raw sensory data coming from some kind of exterior object uh, in the world. But on the other hand, there were what he called the categories of the understanding, which are can be thought of as kind of like a schema or a manifold that we can only we, – we cannot – use the sense data except by categorizing them with this schema. Uh, a crude analogy would be someone wearing rose-colored glasses. You know, mm-hmm. they would only be able to see everything as rose-colored, whether it was in actuality or not. It's much more complex than that, but that's a, that's a crude analogy. And Kant said that we can know a lot more about the categories of the understanding than we can about these objects in the world themselves, that he referred to as noumena, which basically just means uh, an object of thought. Um, and so he 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 um, uh, focused his epistemology 
on understanding the way the categories functioned in the, in the way that we think about experience. And he had 12 categories. There were four groups of three that were organized into a, a concept, its opposition, and then the synthesis of the concept and its opposition. We don't have time to go into those 12, but behind those 12 were the, were the ideas of space and time. To him, space and time, he couldn't prove whether they existed outside the human mind or not, but he knew that the human mind can only think of interior experiences as being organized in time, you know, our, our thought stream, so to speak, and we can only think about exterior experiences or objects as being organized spatially. May I, um, we got a couple of minutes, and I don't want to leave this uh, section without asking you about what was meant by the uh, Copernican Revolution in philosophy, which is credited with Immanuel Kant. I don't know if he said this himself. What does that mean? Thank you for that question. That that um, goes to the heart of understanding Kant's distinction from Hume. Uh, the Copernican Revolution refers to the idea I alluded to earlier that, um, actually I may not have alluded to this idea, um, it is that rather than think of our our concept of something as being shaped by the external object, we should think about our experience of the eternal, of the external object as being shaped by the, the concepts of our understanding. Uh, that, and, and so he likened that to Copernicus's revolution that rather than the, the sun revolving around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun. Right. Yeah. Would it be too simplistic to say that the experience that we have of the world rather than you, you learn externally, it kind of originates from inside. Uh, it, mm-hmm. Whereas uh, we, you know, I, I come to know this water bottle because it, you know, mm-hmm. it has, you know, it, it conforms to a certain reality of what it is. Whereas with Kant, the, the reality would be within me first. Is that, is that well, true? Well, close. He didn't quite make the idealistic turn, which came later, which, which is that thought is actually constructive. Yeah. Uh, but he did consider that of what he thought the two elements of experience were, the sensibility and the understanding, that the understanding is really all we can know, uh, you know, and really take for certain. And it was a, a, a kind of a move from that to the idealist position that, well, maybe ideas actually do constitute reality. Yeah. The way I yeah. like to think about it, Dave, is that David Hume, he would say how we experience the world is conditioned by the world. With, with some exceptions. Immanuel Kant would say, how we experience the world is conditioned by the mind. It starts from within. Uh-huh, very and, good. And I thought, I thought that was really a, a, a neat way to look at it. I'm realizing that five and five is not enough time to go over these very uh, interesting topics. But uh, in an effort to stay on time, because I know Diane's going to be giving us time cues here before long, uh, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Let's switch gears and look at uh, one of the more important philosophical issues going back to the ancient <laughs> Greeks, and that is metaphysics and religion. Of course, we're on a Catholic radio station, so that's a great topic. Mm -hmm. Obviously, concepts vital to the Catholic community. This time, let's start with the Kantian position. So, David Drum, can you talk about Immanuel Kant, metaphysics, and religion? And could you also define metaphysics, if you would? Yeah, certainly. Let me start with the definition. Um, I would define metaphysics as uh, the study of what might uh, be real beyond what we can observe with our five senses. Uh, you know, are, are there realities such as God, freedom, 
um, immortality, things like that, that we cannot get from our from this sensory observation in the world. Mm-hmm. And Kant's view of that was, first of all, that um, as somewhat of a recovering rationalist himself, um, he rejected what he referred to as dogmatic metaphysics, which is metaphysics reasoned from first principles, the way that Descartes or Spinoza or Leibniz arrived at metaphysics. Uh, but he also observed that uh, the human mind, in addition to having these categories by which it organizes its sensory experiences, it also has an innate tendency to want to generalize and universalize these experiences um, into universal categories. And Heath, Heath uh, referred to that as speculative metaphysics, which for him was not a pejorative term. He, he thought that speculative metaphysics was how we were hardwired as human beings to try to make meaning and purpose out of these sensory experiences, and that um, there were kind of three main moves that you could make. Um, on the one hand, you could take your experience of an empirical self um, as having these experiences, and you could universalize that into an immortal soul, um, you could take your particular experiences of cause and effect uh, in the world, and you could universalize that to a concept of a world system where um, everything is causally connected in in an interrelated, um, you know, coherent fashion. And then finally, that you could um, generalize your experiences of. Um, a concept of, of something being perfected, um, you know, as good as it could be, into a concept of the unity of all perfections, which is uh, the way Kant would define the concept of God, uh, was the unity of all possible perfections. And under Kant's system, under, under Kant's system, he thought that you could not prove or disprove that these things existed objectively in the world, but he thought that all three concepts were part of the innate human nature uh, and the way that we made uh, meaning and purpose out of out of experience. Mm. It almost sounds like uh, the ontological argument for God that that which nothing greater can be uh, imagined. Anselm uh, came up with would would that be um, uh, similar to what Kant had in mind? So he was a, he he believed in God, um, but maybe not in the traditional Christian manner. Would that would that be accurate to say? Yeah, he he uh, he he actually rejected the ontological proof uh, as a proof. Uh, some argue that he might have come back toward the ontological proof through the back door, so to speak. But because mm-hmm. he was sort of a committed anti-rationalist, as kind of sort of being a former rationalist, recovering mm-hmm. rationalist, he would he would not admit that you could do any formal a proof. Of, of something, you know, that was not phenomenal, you know, and he thought God as being not phenomenal. But he also thought that this aspect of human nature that wants to universalize, in effect, demanded a God. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you say God is not phenomenal, I know sometimes we yeah. use the adjective phenomenal to mean like really great, but you don't mean it that way. I mean, you, I mean, you, no, I mean phenomenal in the sense of something you can touch, feel, you know, grasp right. with the phenomena. five senses. Yeah, yeah. the yeah. phenomena, right. Yeah. Which I yeah. don't know, even in the Christian perspective, uh, we wouldn't say God is phenomenal. Nobody would say you can reach out and touch God. Of course, he became incarnate uh, in, in, in Jesus Christ, but uh, very interesting. We've got about 30 seconds left of your segment. Do you want to say anything else about metaphysics and um, 
and and religion in, in regard to yeah. I'll say, I'll say I'll say one more thing, which is that um, um, you know Kant. We'll get to morality next, but but uh, to Kant, um, his belief in God, which which as you correctly said, he did believe in God, but it was grounded in the moral consciousness rather than moral consciousness being grounded in the belief in God. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll get which to that is more another one of those about, Copernican things. Yeah, we'll get, <laughs> when, yeah, when we talk about morality. And the final thing I'll say is he, he was rather indifferent to religious practice and creeds. Okay. You know, he, he did have good things to say about Christian thought, but he, you know, he was not your, your regular churchgoer, you know, sort of uh, table pounder on creeds. To, mm-hmm. him, to him, the most important religious expression was to do the right moral thing in each moment. That was, that was the essence of religion to come. Mm, very interesting. And then you can, can think about, well, and again, we don't have time mm-hmm. for this, but uh, was there a giver of the moral code? Was there something that uh, what, the, the, what the moral code was based on? Let's move on. Uh, we're having mm-hmm. a, a really interesting debate. Uh, Rob Olson here taking the mm-hmm. uh, David Hume position and David Drum taking the position of Immanuel Kant on various issues. We're talking about metaphysics and religion now. So, Rob Olson, tell us about uh, David Hume, metaphysics, and religion, if you would. It'd make, it would make your job a little easier, Dave, if David Drum had the David Hume position. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, so on, on this topic, I would say that uh, David Hume really felt that these, these religious metaphysical thoughts might, might have arisen from the fear of the unknown, uh, on one hand, he believed that it was natural to believe in God's existence, but that the, the believer must realize that this belief cannot be supported by rational evidence, uh, like, the, like the argument from design. Um, he was very much opposed to uh, what he called dogmatic uh, theological claims, but at the same time, he was very much opposed to dogmatic claims on the other side, that it's an impossible for there to be a God. And so some, some would claim that he really was an agnostic. Of course, um, he lived in a time where he had to be very careful about what he said about religion, uh, because this was, this was a time where uh, it was, um, I mean, he, he wrote a book on, on ethics and morality, and in this book, and human nature, and in this book, he really talked very little about God or supreme mm-hmm. being. And so a lot of people were aghast about that. How can you talk about morality and the human condition without a reference to a deity? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he really focused on, on once again, on, on the empirical approach on experience. And as David uh, Drum so eloquently said, it's like, do we don't really have a sense uh, you know, the five senses of this deity. Can I um, uh, interrupt for a second, yes. Rob, and just ask, you know, Aquinas, who, you know, I, I teach and have a great respect for, talks about a posteriori demonstration leading to God. You know, you see the effect and it leads mm-hmm. to, a, to, to the, 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 the knowledge of a cause. Right. If, if David Hume were to see a sunrise or a sunset or, you know, the order of the universe, um, being an empiricist himself and being very right. observant of this phenomena, would he not say that there there needs to be a cause and that cause would have to be something that created it, or would he he wouldn't go that far? Well, as you, as you know, the intelligent design argument goes something like, okay, we have a we have a complex system, we have a beautiful watch, 
And behind that watch, there's this, this amazing design. There's going to be a, an intelligent creator. And the same thought applies to Mother Earth, that there's yeah. got to be a, a creator. But what, what David Hume would say is that, well, this, this is not such a perfect world. Uh, there, there are lots of times where we get too much rain or there's not enough rain. We have animals that are killing each other in order to survive. Uh, and so he, he had a real uh, issue with what, you know, what was termed this, this beautiful creation because he saw a lot of defects. I mean, earthquakes and horrible diseases. And, and a lot of it, what he started from was his concern about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, that has challenged theologians uh, for time immemorial. Uh, but I think that's where, I mean, he was, he was born and raised in a very religious environment as well. Nearly everybody was. Mm-hmm. He was born in Scotland. And so he, he really started challenging the, his, his beliefs early on, religious beliefs that he got from his parents. He started thinking about that around age 18. And, and I think a big part of that was the problem of evil and mm-hmm. the problem of suffering. Um, but anyway, he, he really felt that, uh, you know, he was, as I said before, he was a skeptic. Uh, and there's a thought, a lot of his critics were saying the skepticism seems to take away more than it offers. Uh, but he, Hume really felt that this skepticism was uh, the basis for a complete approach to life. If one is skeptical about all these things, then one is more likely to be Less, less likely to be arrogant, mm-hmm. more likely to be empathetic, more likely to say there's a limit to human reason. And, and so what, in a way, what he was selling was not religious belief, but uncertainty. What he was selling is, is the, is, is the, is the uh, desire to be empathetic and sympathetic to others. That was like a big part of his his belief system. All right, very good. We're right on time, according to my watch. Let's move on to ethics and morality. Uh, these, of course, have been the building blocks of philosophy ever since uh, Plato uh, lived. Uh, Rob, we're going to go to you. If you could delineate uh, David Hume's position on ethics and morality in uh, five minutes. <laughs> okay, so David Hume could be a little bit uh, on the arrogant side, Dave, because he saw himself as the Newton of the moral sciences. Okay. Uh, that was his chief interest. How does, how do we, us human beings on this planet, how do we live the good life? And what is, what is, what is the, what are the proper ethics and what are the proper moralities? He took a great interest in, in this whole field of this conundrum of how human beings can be good. Um, so he argued that morality isn't about having moral ideas. Uh, where where maybe Kant might have this this concept of this moral law within this powerful moral law, uh, David Hume would argue that that morality isn't about that. It's about having been trained from an early age in the art of decency through the emotions. So he saw it as e- emotive uh, rather than something. You know, he he really emphasized the the value of the passions and the emotions and developing those in the right way questioning really this rationality. And if he had followed Immanuel Kant, he would have probably argued that Kant had had too many strict rules uh, and too many absolutes. And 
And so David Hume was much more about the circumstances and the situation uh, and not following a, a, a predetermined path, but a, a path of benevolence based on the situations involved. And I, mean, I wouldn't say that, Dave, that he was a complete moral relativist, but he really put the emphasis on you know, advocating qualities like good, you know, wit, good manners, sympathy, because those are the things that make people nice to be around. Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, he very much was opposed to someone who would say that, like a modern-day person that would say, the answer to everything is science and technology, and there's no way that there's a God at all, and, and, and these are the new gods. Well, Hume, Hume would disagree with that 100%. Can I, can I give an example? Like, let's say a man catches his wife with another man in, in bed and he shoots the man and Hume might say, well, of course, you got to take circumstances into consideration. Right. You might take uh, emotions, the anger, mm-hmm. whereas somebody like Kant, and David can talk about this in a second, might say, well, no, the killing is, is, a, is a moral law. It's always wrong right. to the, the, the murder. And, and we, we, right. we, we shouldn't even take all these circumstances into consideration. Right. Would that be a good example? Yeah, perhaps. I, what I what I think inter- is interesting about the categor- categorical imperative, this 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 law that you follow all the time, and I see some benefits to it. But I think if Hume were to respond to Kant, which was impossible, obviously, because uh, he lived before him, but I think I think Hume would say, but what about situations where these competing interests, um, where, where they're competing with each other? I mean, the, the classical example is. That the, the 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 Nazis are pounding on your door uh, in in uh, the Netherlands in 1942 and want to know if there's any Jewish people inside, and and there are. And Immanuel Kant would say, well, you you can't lie, right? Because then everyone would lie. But then you got to think, well, wouldn't part of the moral good be that you have to protect the innocent? And so now that you have a prime example of competing, you know, competing uh, situations, competing laws, and I think Hume would argue. That, that caring for the innocent is more important than lying. Interestingly, I don't know if you, you, might, you might know this, both Augustine and Aquinas come down Kantian on this mm-hmm. for, for a very different reason, because they would, uh, what Aquinas says is that the words that come out of your mouth must be integrated with a thought in your mind. So if you're thinking, oh yeah, of course, I've got you know, Jews up in the attic space, mm-hmm. but your words say, no, I don't, there's a, it, it almost goes back to, uh, it's, it's, it's an issue of, of truth, and you can't violate that law. So, right. interestingly, right. The, these, these Christian philosophers and theologians would, I think, be more Kantian in that respect. I, I bet you're right. Yeah, interesting. Um, Got about a minute remaining. Okay. Uh, any so, other points? So, uh, yeah, I would just say that ethical theorists uh, can roughly be divided into two different camps. Uh, those consider an action moral or immoral, depending on the motive behind it. Uh, and those who consider an action moral or immoral, depending on the consequences so uh, Kant would probably be in the former camp, uh, being a deontologist, uh, whereas Hume would be a consequentialist. You know, what are the consequences of this? Mm-hmm. And so he, he wasn't really a utilitarian per se, but he would look at the consequences of an action. So white lies would probably be okay uh, for Hume because, once again, the, 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 the value is being... To, to love those around you and, and to, to express concern and sympathy and empathy for them. And he would say that the consequences of that lie might be uh, not negative at all. 
All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Rob Olson. Let's let uh, David Drum give the Kantian uh, teaching on ethics and morality. David? Um, sure. Um, ethics and morality were probably Kant's uh, number one subject, um, as Rob claims for Hume. And to get into this territory, he had to make a very sharp break with his ideas about epistemology we talked about earlier. The ideas about epistemology and largely about metaphysics were part of his first major work called The Critique of Pure Reason. Uh, he then turned to his second major work, The Critique of Practical Reason, to talk about morality um, and ethics. And the distinction is that to Kant, Pure reason has to do with knowledge, how we know things, whereas practical reason has to do with uh, the choices that we make in accordance with moral law and the actions that we take to put this choice in action. And uh, Hume actually referred to this distinction as the distinction between an is and an ought. You know, what do we, you mm-hmm. know, what do we know, what is factually true, and what is the right thing to do in the moment? And to Kant, these were two completely separate uh, compartments, if you will, of human nature. You know, the, the way we know things and the way we know what is moral are, are differently. And he, he did feel like we had an innate inborn sense of knowing what the right thing to do morally in a particular situation is, whether we follow that and act on that or not. Uh, he, he felt like we had a, a, a way to intuit that. Uh, whereas he didn't think we could intuit abstract intellectual ideas. Um, so were there some contradictions between the critique of pure reason and the critique of practical reason? Were there some developments where he said, oh, well, this I, I, I clearly realize this is going a little bit against what I said previously. Is that the case? Very much so. Um, he, he, the conclusion he reaches in the critique of pure reason is that um, everything is cause and effect and, and determined uh, you know, by cause. And so there's really no room for freedom of action. And then in the practical reason, the, the moral autonomy of, of the moral choice in the moment becomes the, the prime. Uh, and so he's, he's left with trying to reconcile those two, which he attempts to do in his third major work, The Critique of Judgment. I'll get to that a little bit in my summary. Hmm. You know, one could argue how successfully he ever bridged that gap, but he, he was aware that there was a gap between some of his ideas and the two. But um, to kind of develop his, his ideas about morality a little bit, um, Rob, I agree with Rob. He, he was not a consequentialist. Uh, he, he, was, he did regard motive as more important than the consequences. And the way he defined that is he said the, the ultimate good is the goodwill. In other words, the intent uh, to do good. And then, and then he unwrapped what that meant, and he said uh, a goodwill is a will that acts for the sake of moral duty. Um, and, of course, that leads to another definition. What is moral duty? And he said, we, we act for the sake of duty when we act out of reverence for the moral law. And so this is the final build up here. Mm-hmm. What is moral law? Um, to Kant, moral law is summarized in what he called the categorical imperative. And there's about four or five different paraphrases of the categorical imperative. Uh, but the one I'm going to use would go like this. I am never to act otherwise then so that I can also will that the maxim by which I act becomes a universal law. And this is part of Kant's universalizing tendency in everything. 
And uh, to Rob's point, I don't I don't know if Khan ever wrote specifically on this, but I would think you could have a maxim under that rule that says you tell the truth except when the only consequence of not telling the truth is that an innocent person loses their life. If that's, you know, I, I would think that could be a maximum that you could say, I will that that maximum becomes yeah. universal yeah. law. That's, so, great. that's a great point. I, yeah, I, I don't think it's quite as hidebound. It's, it's not a, a Ten Commandments approach per se. Mm-hmm. It's not that these are the rules. It's that you you work out the maximum, the maximum by am I willing to universalize this? And if you're yeah. not willing to universalize it, then you're acting for something other than than morality. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, thank you uh, for both of those uh, descriptions of ethics and morality. We're going to wrap things up, believe it or not. It seems like it's uh, gone by so fast. It's a fa- fascinating conversation. Uh, advocating uh, some closing arguments on the strengths of their respective philosopher. And again, we ask everybody listening, uh, if your head is probably spinning a little bit right now, but if you feel like you fall more in the Humean David Hume camp or the Immanuel Kant camp, uh, go ahead and email me and let me know, and I'll share the results. I'm not saying who's the better debater, but as far as the philosopher, which one do you think is more in line with uh, your Catholic understanding of the way the uh, we see the world? and morals and, uh, you know, epistemology. Uh, so, Rob, we'll go to you. Uh, let, let's um, maybe we, we, we'll probably only do about three minutes, I okay. think, uh, for sake of time, and then maybe we'll have a little bit of time left over. Closing arguments on the pros of David Hume. Okay, I'll conclude my position uh, on, with two points. Well, first off, I want to say that Aristotle used to be my, my favorite philosopher, but the more I read about Hume now, I think David Hume is my favorite philosopher. Mm. And I just want to make two points here. I think that great philosophers write well and in an understandable way. Uh, and I think Kant fails in that regard. Uh, one quote is, Kant is the last person in the world to whom we should read on Kant. <laughs> uh, Will Durant said the following, quote, our philosopher, re- referring to uh, Kant, is like and unlike Jehovah. He speaks through clouds, but without the illumination of the lightning bolt. Mm. He disdains examples in the concrete. They would have made the book too long, but still 800 pages. One of his friends, one of Kant's friends said he feared, feared insanity if he went on with reading it. Uh, in contrast, David Hume is, is relatively clear. Uh, here's a couple of quotes that I just thought were just amazing. Quote, heaven and hell suppose two distinct species of men, the good and the bad, but the greatest part of mankind float betwixt vice and virtue. The other quote is, uh, quote, Beauty is no quality in things themselves. It exists merely in the mind which contemplates them, and each mind perceives a different beauty. My second remark uh, is, is, is really a lightweight remark. It's just that he just seems like a really nice guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> a real that's not a very yeah. profound mm. philosophical statement, uh, but uh, kind of guy you like to have, go have lunch yeah, with and yeah. chit chat. He he was called an infidel by many religious leaders at the time. He was denied two university professorships because of his li- religious writings. But uh, I can think that it you know it could be fair to say perhaps that among the most he the, he was among the most beloved of all the philosophers. He had an affable personality, clear headedness, um, and. Uh, Hume never explicitly, unlike Aristotle, articulated what the, what the good life was, Dave. But he did even better. He showed us by his own example. Um, in his mind, Hume and humans are creatures of flesh and blood, of 
intellect and instinct of reason and passion. Uh, but he said the good life is therefore one which does justice to each of these characteristics, a balance. He studied and wrote, but he also played billiards. And a great story that, that he cooked a sheep's head broth that had guests talking days later. <laughs> now, I don't know if any, anybody in your audience has ever had a sheep's head broth, but it's a big, it's a popular dish in Scotland. Is that right? Okay, yes, very yes. good. Well, thank um, you so much. I think we'll have some time to come back and just have a, a roundtable discussion at the end, but I want to make sure we give uh, David Drum a chance to give a closing argument on the pros of Immanuel Kant for about three minutes, if you would, David. Sure. First of all, I'll concede that Kant is not an easy read, but um, my, my rebuttal to Rob's remark there would be um, that it's because, in my opinion, there is a lightning bolt, that the, uh, the ideas are there, they are uh, sublime, and, um, you know, don't come out easy. But I know, you know, I've been studying Kant now for most of my life, and, and I keep finding little gems that are in there. And, and so I'm not deterred by the difficulty in reading. I can't wait to, to you know, try to unpack a few more. Um, let me just summarize. I think I, think I would consider there are four... Uh, you know, points that make Kant one of the world's greatest philosophers. And we've touched on three of them. The fourth one we haven't, and I'll try to unpack that one just a little bit. The, the three we've touched on are this idea of the Copernican revolution, the idea that our experience uh, in the world has a component uh, that is imposed by our understanding itself and may not reflect what is actually exterior to us. And so we may not truly know what is exterior to us. Mm-hmm. Um, the second point is the idea of what he calls the transcendental ideas um, of freedom, um, the immortal soul, and God, which, which again, to him, uh, you could not prove or disprove whether they existed in the world, but that they had to him what he called a regulative function, meaning that they served a purpose uh, in human existence, helping us understand things, you know, in a purposeful, meaningful way. Um, and and thirdly, uh, his ideas about morality we just touched on um, were truly a new approach to, to moral theory uh, being focused on the intentionality, the motive, you know, as opposed to the consequence or, or something like that. The one we haven't touched on is, goes back to your question about how does he bridge his rather different concepts in the moral arena and in the theory of knowledge arena. And his attempt to do that involves what he referred to as judgment, which is a different understanding than I grew up with knowing judgment. Judgment to him involves the feeling nature. You know, it's kind of how you just kind of your gut sense of things, I guess, is a way to think of it. And he, he thought of the moral arena as having to do with will, um, the, uh, understanding, you know, the, the, the knowledge having to do with understanding, and then feeling is what to him had the potential to bridge these two worlds. Mm. And feeling he wrote about in three different senses. He wrote about the feeling of aesthetic appreciation of a work of art as as being able to see in that particular um, manifestation of art the abstract idea of beauty, you know, being, being able to go from the particular to the general. And also in looking at a natural object and seeing it not just as something that 
you know, has causes, but something that is an end in itself, something that has a teleology, something that is, you know, existing for the sake of itself. He saw, he thought that is a, is an aspect of judgment. And then finally, what he called the sublime, which is the feeling we get when we're on the seashore looking at the ocean, when we're looking at the starry heavens, uh, when we're in the middle of a thunderstorm and we get a feeling of wonder and awe, limitlessness, uh, formlessness. And he, he wrote a great eloquence about this concept of the sublime as, as being perhaps, you know, where we unify uh, the freedom of the moral autonomy and the cause and effect um, of the everyday world. You know, if if you could, uh, I appreciated that, that Rob gave a little bit of a background and insight into the kind of person that David Hume was. I've heard stories mm. about Immanuel mm. Kant, how he never left his village, how he was very predictable. People were setting their clocks uh, by his walks. Can you tell us a little bit about, as far as you know, what kind of a guy was he, just on a personal basis? Yes, he... he um he he lived in the town of Kernigsberg, which is uh, now actually a little Russian enclave, um, you know, kind of on the German side of the Baltic states. Uh, it was East Prussia then, and and he 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 went to university there. He taught there. He grew up there. You know, he may have traveled a little bit, but he was pretty provincial for a philosopher. Uh-huh. Um, and he also was very regular in his habits. He had a schedule, you know, where he, he read in the morning, taught in the afternoon, went for a walk every day. He had, he had like a two or two and a half hour lunch where he loved conversing with people. And so he was convivial. He was not a, a hermit, you know, close yeah. up, but he was very habitual, let's just say, in his routines. And, um, you know, I suppose found comfort in, yeah. in those habits. It's good to know somebody so intelligent like these two men were also good guys. And maybe some of you could go, some of you can go have a beer with. Uh, if I'm, if I may, um, I just have this question that we, as we wrap things up, could y'all talk a little bit about as we look in, um, the world in 2023, how has David Hume, how has Immanuel Kant influenced the way the world operates today? What's the, the lasting, uh, uh, impact of their philosophy because I'm guessing most people don't even know who these guys are, but their 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 ideas are impacting the world. Could, could, is that well, a fair with, question? With, could with, you say? Yeah, with David Hume, he his focus was on being skeptical. Just because the world is 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 the way it is today doesn't mean it's going to be that way tomorrow. Um, Immanuel Kant and, and others really saw Newton's laws as as fixed. That's absolute. It's scientific. It's true, and yet Einstein, who was very much who who read Hume, he said, "If I hadn't read David Hume, I might not have challenged all these these concepts of of um, of Newton." And so uh, he was very much influenced. And and of course, you know, some of Newton's laws don't really apply as far as the speed of light and 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 uh, warp warp. The warp nature of space at, at you know at, at reaching nearly the speed of a light, and so uh, Albert Einstein was very much influenced by uh, David Hume, and so and and I think a lot of scientists are as well. They 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 talk about not as a scientific law but as a hypothesis, mm-hmm. uh, referring back in, in in essence to David Hume. Let me ask uh, David the same question: lasting legacy and impact of modern day culture by Immanuel Kant. Well, I would say Immanuel Kant was a partial antidote to the skepticism that Rob refers to. I think the skepticism itself was healthy, but I think, in my mind, Kant began to answer that by finding ways to think about 
concepts such as God, immortality, and freedom um, in a post-scientific revolution way. I think after the scientific revolution, some of the medieval ways of thinking about those subjects did not hold up quite so well. Um, and I think Immanuel Kant blazed a trail to finding a modern way, if you will, of thinking about those subjects. Now, you know, to kind of put me on the table, I'm I'm more of an idealist and a process philosopher, but I consider Kant a stepping stone to those philosophies that came after him, um, and so a pathfinder in that sense. But I think he did put us on the path to thinking about transcendental and metaphysical subjects in a post-medieval world. Very good. Well, you both presented your um, respective philosophers very eloquently, and I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Uh, dear listener, if you would like to email and say any questions, I'm sure I can pass these along to uh, 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 Rob Olson and David Drum. If you have any questions, maybe there's one or the other philosopher that you most align with, or you think that they're you know, overall philosophy is more in line with uh, your Catholic sensibilities, or maybe you're not even Catholic and you're listening to the station. Who, which one made mo- the most sense to you? Uh, you can email me, Dave Palmer at grnonline.com. I'm very grateful to both of you. I know you're very busy, man, um, for coming here, doing this. I think it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And I want to thank you for that. And I just, as we close out, also want to thank Diane Xavier for staying late today uh, in, in, in running the board for this. Is there anything that you'd like to say about the Dallas Philo- Philosophers uh, group as far as maybe somebody listening right now saying, I kind of like this philosophy stuff. Do you want to give a little plug for that, Rob? Sure. We meet the second and fourth Tuesday of the month, not during the summer. But we have a wide range. We typically try to get a university professor uh, on philosophy, but it doesn't have to be philosophy. I mean, philosophy can be a really broad topic. There's philosophy of religion. There's there's philosophy of science. There's philosophy of technology, uh, you know, uh, psychological, philosophy of psychology. And so we try to get professors in that, that talk about a wide variety of, of areas of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Very good. We're one of the few groups that doesn't, push a particular ideology. We've been in existence for about 40 years now, and we we want to open it up to the whole marketplace of ideas. We, we, do, we do not try to uh, tailor a particular wo- uh, worldview. Uh, you know, we, we're interested in, in people presenting all the worldviews. And I'm sure there's a lot of people thinking, oh, they're just a bunch of eggheads. They're really, they're all like college professors. <laughs> That's a true statement. We are all a bunch of eggheads. <laughs> but uh, everybody's welcome, even if you don't feel like you're a philosopher. If, the, if, if, if this conversation today interested you, it doesn't mean you made, it all made sense. Uh, you know, a lot of it was like, whoa, what did you just say? Uh, do you have a website, Rob, for the... Uh, the yes, it's www.philosophersforum.org. Philosophersforum.org. Okay. Yeah. If Once you type a, in Dallas Philosophers Forum, you'll, you'll come right to our website. All right. Uh, thank you again to both of you for taking time to do this. Uh, we ought to do it again sometime. Rob Olson and David Drum talking about uh, David Hume and Immanuel Kant, respectively. And so that's going to bring us to the end of this interview of the week. I hope you enjoyed it again. If you have questions or you want to weigh in on these two philosophers, go ahead and email me, Dave Palmer at grnonline.com. This has been the interview of the week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. God bless you. Thanks for joining us for this week's KATH 910 AM interview of the week. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Catholic news and information pertinent to North Texas Catholics. Please join us again next week at this same time for another KATH 910 AM interview of the week. 
Hello, my name is Bill Mertz. My wife Liz and I own Master Tech Auto Repair in Plano. We're proud sponsors of Catholic Radio. Our family has been parishioners of St. Gabriel's and McKinney for many years. Master Tech is a full-service auto repair. From oil changes to complete engine replacement, our transmission service. We're located just across... Thanks for listening to KATH 910 AM, Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth, and North Texas on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Catholic Radio for your soul. Heard also at grnonline.com and on your smartphone.